Our reading this morning is from Acts 2, page 1094 in the Church Bibles, Acts 2, verse 42 to 45. The Fellowship of Believers. They devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the Apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do have a seat, and uh, as you go down, pick up your, your Bibles, if you will. Turn to page um, 1094, and also have before you the outline or a statement of purpose on the, the back of the morning service sheet. Now, our statement of purpose that we have there um, is at least 25 years old. It's not original, it's based on the passage we had read to us, Acts 2, 42 to 47, which is, if you like, a model church. It's the record of the first church in Jerusalem, and we aspire towards its qualities. And periodically it's worth reminding ourselves as to what we are in business for and to update our application. The, the truth is unchanging, but uh, the application can be very wide-ranging, and um, we obviously illustrate the application at different ways at different times. So just to uh, get our heads clear, in our teaching we aim to be biblically orthodox and relevant to the issues that we face in life today. In our fellowship we aim to be caring, warm, caring and supportive, growing in both quality and quantity. And in our worship, we aim to be vital, contemporary and culturally relevant, prayer-based and cross-centred. And in our mission, we aim to be comprehensive, compassionate and evangelistic with a global as well as a local interest. So this statement of purpose, you'll find it on our website. It's printed at the beginning of the church directory as it's uh, renewed each year. And it's explained to everyone who comes on a, uh, a welcome supper. It's something that we invite all our members to pray for and to live out so that it might become a reality. Of course, in order to uh, support these objectives, we have a number of other rather vital things like finance, the facilities we enjoy, IT support, PA, AV, administration, and many other things. But I'm not uh, going to be considering them today because, valuable as they are, they in themselves are not what we are in business for. Besides, would you really like me to uh, share my knowledge of IT? Well, you might. It would be a very short sermon. <laughs> or if I felt under pressure to fill my time slot, it would be incredibly erroneous as well. 
So let's concentrate on those four uh, particular features of the model church, the church in Jerusalem, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And if you look at the passage to verse 42, you will see three features of that church spelt out. Apostolic teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, what we loosely call worship. And each of those three features is then amplified in the verses which follow. So, for example, apostolic teaching in verse 43 is amplified by, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. In other words, the miracles were God's attestation that what the apostles said was true. Then you take fellowship, and we see in verses 44 and 45 how that is amplified. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And then in 46, and they ate together in their own homes. And then we uh, find that in um, uh, also that uh, they met in the... Uh, then we... And I've got myself confused now. This is this post-Christmas kind of et too much. Can't think straight. But um, we have... Um, yeah, we have the, the breaking of bread and prayer, what we call worship. Uh, they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. And they had glad and sincere hearts praising God. And then in verse 47, the fourth uh, element of their life together was uh, their evangelism, their mission, in which uh, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So let's take a look at each in turn, not giving the same amount of time to each, but let's uh, highlight each. Apostolic teaching. Uh, we need it. We would be in the dark without it. An image often given in the Bible would be of us in a ship, without a compass, without a chart, and really without any sense of direction, being at the mercy of the prevailing currents or winds. Would we, we would be a lost and adrift. And into that kind of rudderless world, Jesus Christ, God himself, breaks in in person. He shows himself what he is like, he acts, and he speaks. And after his death, he taught the apostles, and he got them to recall the words which he'd said to them during that three-year period of public ministry, and through his Spirit inspired them after his ascension to record both the events and Jesus' divine commentary on those events. And how do we know it's true? Well, we can check out it historically, which we don't have time to do this morning, and we can check it out experientially. So we have the objective events and teaching recorded in history, which we can subject to the same kind of criteria that we would other any other historical events. And then we find that as we uh, engage the Scriptures with these events and with the person of Jesus who is in them, we find that um, experientially it is alive, that it makes sense. The one, the objective, and the other, the subjective, they both corroborate one another. There's a coherence between them corresponds to our sense of reality. 
As here, though, we are told specifically that they're attested, the teaching is attested by signs and wonders, miracles. Jesus and the apostles did miracles. Jesus on 34 recorded occasions, the apostles on 10. These miracles were instant, they were visible, they were unambiguous. Apart from one occasion, they never failed, and even the skeptics, even their opponents, admitted that they were miracles. There was no debate about it. They were more than great answers to prayer. They were more than the medically inexplicable. They were more than the occasional one-off miracle done by somebody who wasn't an apostle or wasn't a prophet in the Old Testament. Like Moses, like Elijah, Jesus and the apostles had this ability. It was God's way, he says in Jerusalem 34.10, 2 Corinthians 12.12, Hebrews 1. It's God's way of attesting. He's saying, these guys, what they're saying, that's from me. And this is my endorsement of it. This is my imprimatur. And how did those first Christians respond? Well, we read they were devoted. This literally means to be gripped by. They were gripped by the apostles' teaching. And how should our response be? Well, we should be devoted to it. We should be gripped by it. We should study in our times alone. We should study the Bible. We should allow it to fashion our framework of thinking. We should allow it to be applied to every area of life that we're involved in and think about. We must resist the temptation to add or subtract from it. The Pharisees, the traditionalists, they were ticked off by Jesus in no uncertain terms because they added to the scriptures and so in effect nullified them. They kind of neutered them. They were kind of legalists and they worked out umpteen ways of getting around the obvious. But it's those like the Sadducees who subtract from the scriptures that we're probably more likely to encounter today. The revisionists, those who take bits out and then of course what you're left with is quite different from what you started from. Thirdly, our response after personal study, resisting the temptation to add and subtract, we must apply it. D.L. Moody was a great American evangelist of the uh, 19th century. He said, the Bible is not given to us to increase our knowledge, but so it might change our lives. Our lives being how we think and how we live. The Christian worldview is public domain stuff. It relates to everything because it is all God's world. We have to work hard at renewing our minds and working out the application to a whole variety of issues that we face today. Partly we say our mission is comprehensive because it does affect all of life. Because all of life is God's. Let's just pick on one way in which we might apply our Christian thinking and to an issue of today. And that would be the value of human life. Human beings have an intrinsic worth because we are made in the image of God and he has a relationship with us long before we are capable of being aware of any possible relationship we might have with him. That's clear if you read Psalm 139, for example. And that outlook affects 
our view of life from conception to cremation. So how a human being is conceived has to be thought about very carefully so that there is a continuity between the child and its biological parents who contribute towards that child's identity. We have to think very carefully as to what we do and don't do to the baby growing in the womb. This is an area that our generation is as blind to as a generation 250 years ago was blind to the inhumanity of slavery. Now there are very, very few things that the Church of England General Synod ever manages to agree on. Terrorism was one. I can remember my first sort of debate at General Synod was on terrorism. Just for clarification, we were not in favour of terrorism. <laughs> But a few years before that, abortion had been on the agenda and the General Synod voted overwhelmingly, almost unanimously, against it. You see, to take deliberately the life of a human being that God has given significance to and who is capable of growing to be just like us is a very grave breach of such a person's human rights. It is a very grave sin. Similarly, it means that we treat human beings properly right up to the point of death and through to their burial or cremation. While we don't strive officiously to keep alive those who are following a natural end-of-life pathway, after all, it is quite natural to die. Everybody who's ever lived has died, with, I think, uh, two exceptions, Enoch and Elijah. You know, we don't strive officiously to keep people alive for the sake of it. We allow people to die who are just heading in that direction, where that is the natural course of events. But we do not deliberately kill people. Everyone in the Netherlands, apparently, where the right to die law was passed in 2002, seems to know someone who has lost a loved one through a so-called mercy killing. As many as one in 33 people in the Netherlands now use euthanasia to end their lives. And the number of cases has risen each year. So, for example, in 2006, there were 2,000. In 2013, 5,000. If campaigners have their way, the law will be changed here in the UK too to allow those who wish to end their life to do so at a time of their choosing. We would do well to heed the warning of the senior Dutch ethicists who supported euthanasia and who oversaw the law when it was first introduced in Holland, but who has now advised the UK not to blindly follow suit. Professor Theo Bohr says that it would lead to widespread killing of the sick. Don't do it, Britain, he urged last year. Once the genie is out of the bottle, it is not likely ever to go back in again. You see, this dehumanising of life at both the beginning and the end spreads to dehumanising of human beings in between. I think of a lady who I'd seen come to faith, who moved away to be nearer her relatives, was put in a nice flat. I heard that she was very poorly and I asked to visit. The door was left open. I called her name, there was no reply, so I walked in. I've seen people in worse state as they were literally dying. 
she was left alone. That was disgraceful. It was inhuman. She died a few days later. You see, we have duties as well as rights. Duties towards family members who are vulnerable at any time in life. We should not abdicate it to the state. Sure, the state can help in its provision, but we have to be involved in the caring. And duties executed can become joys as we have the satisfaction of knowing that we are doing the right thing towards them and seeing the qualitative difference it makes in such a person's life, however diminished. As one social commentator said this week, the last 50 years have seen a dramatic social shift, loosening of ties of obligation, a relaxation of personal responsibility, and a valuation of personal freedom above all else. We have a duty to value human beings, and especially those in our own families, not just in the areas of life and death, but in living too. An application of apostolic teaching. Secondly, fellowship, loneliness. 30% of people live in a single household. Student surveys often reveal that students are surprisingly lonely. Surveys of middle managers revealed that few had friends outside of work. Funerals can quite often literally have just a handful of people present. Well, the Christian antidote to that is fellowship or sharing. The word is koinonia in Greek. And it means sharing. And the Apostle Paul and John particularly talk about our sharing in the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And also the sharing in the lives of other Christians. And the examples they give here are of food and finance. Now, just to give a demonstration of how uh, sharing is so uh, strengthening. You just look at the Bible. These pages are incredibly thin. Now, don't do this, but it would be very easy to tear one of these pages. But if you try and tear the book, you won't be able to because there is solidarity when all the individuals are, are put together. Well, the examples, if you do want to test it, use an old telephone directory. But here we have the examples are of finance and food. Now, theirs wasn't a communism, because communism has to be enforced by the state. Now, this was entirely voluntary. If you read Acts carefully, you'll discover, for example, you know, there is private ownership. Mary owned a house, Acts 12. When you think of Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead for lying. The apostle Peter said to them, was it not yours their money before you gave it. There is a right to private property. But it is incumbent upon Christians to think about how they use their resources. Some are called to voluntary poverty. Some are called to live on reduced incomes for the sake of their Christian vocation. All Christians are told, 1 Timothy 6, 17, not to trust in riches, but to be generous. There's no law, it's all of grace, which in some ways makes it more difficult in our response. 
And then there are meals, hospitality. You've probably heard me in the past kind of rabbit on about um, some of my uh, interesting meals like uh, sheep's brains in Palestine, frog's legs in Kuala Lumpur, reindeer meat in Lapland, turtle steaks in the Caribbean. Well, I've discovered very recently you don't have to go to exotic destinations in your kind of youth, as I did. Uh, youth used quite generously, I should say. Um, you don't have to travel to eat exotic food. You know, many years ago, I can remember sharing my only other culinary tip was when um, Kathy and I had uh, four young children and we would uh, go to Iceland where you could get dead cheap Indian and Chinese meals at a fraction of the takeaway prices. And we used to make Friday night after the cherubs were fast asleep. It was our evening and we'd heat up one of these uh, Indian or Chinese meals and enjoy time together. Now I share with you a new, my only other culinary discovery. This time it's from Lidl, which I have discovered in the last month. At certain times of the year, it sells venison, ostrich, moose. That's the Canadian horned variety, not the other kind of moose that you might either eat or use in your hair, I understand. Um, and kangaroo. Now, I thoroughly recommend kangaroo. It's kind of, you know, kangaroo steaks seem to be hardly different from beef steaks. The moose, I think, needs casseroling rather than frying. And I'll let you know how the ostrich goes when I've actually bought some. So, whether it's time with your wife or whether it's time with friends, cultivate fellowship over food in the new year. You see, if you want to belong, if you want to feel loved, if you want to have that sense of involvement, you do have to share yourself. You see, God is in the business of gathering isolated orphans and adopting them into his new eternal family, which begins now amongst us as a foretaste of heaven. Our problem in our contemporary society... Um, well, our problems in the contemporary society, some of which the church is really able as a family to do something about. For example, we can really help with ethnic, social and generational integration. There's a body called the Social Integration Commission. It's charged with encouraging those from different ethnic groups, different classes and different generations to mix far more than they usually do. Matthew Taylor is the chair of the commission and has said, institutions play a huge role in determining how and with whom we interact. Now, do you know which institutions are best at achieving that? Matthew Taylor again. Our research shows that perhaps contrary to perceived, perceived wisdom, activities such as attending a place of worship or a sporting event can bring people from all sorts of backgrounds together. Their research discovered for, for generational integration, sporting events led the way with an integration score of 59% on this measure, just ahead of places of worship at 57%. Other settings scored on average around 46% for bringing generations together. 
Or if you take ethnic integration, churches were given an integration score of 25%, which is twice the average level and far ahead of sporting events, which average just over 7% on the racial mixing measure. Similarly, on social background, you know, what some, co some politicians might call the knobs, short for nobility, and who are mixing with the plebs, which is from the Latin plebeius, which means belonging to the common people, in case you wanted to know what those things were. Um, similarly, this commission found that churches led the way with a score of 20%, well ahead of the average of 18%. Look around you today. Where else do you see 90-year-olds mixing with 9-year-olds? Where families of young children can have honorary grannies to babysit? Where else will you have people from around 25 different nationalities meeting together each week? Well, you do here in the Christian community. Where else will you have those who have gone to some of the leading fee-paying schools in the country? Admittedly, we're a bit thin on the ground of those. After all, we are Basingstoke, but they do exist. Mixing with those whose claim to fame is that their primary school, the nearest one to us, um, has the distinction of um, having as a former pupil the last woman to be hung in Britain for murder. Well, you do here. It's not natural for those at the head of their professions to be socialising with those at the bottom. You don't get senior medical staff socialising with healthcare assistants in society, but you do in church. You don't get senior management mixing with facilities assistants. It doesn't happen, but it does through our church family. So apostolic teaching, these people were devoted, they were gripped by the apostles' teaching, for us the New Testament, and uh, they worked hard at uh, studying it, applying it, and most crucially, obeying it. And sharing, God the Holy Trinity invites us to join in their eternal family. We strive to experience it within the Christian community and to model it to the outside world as a better way to live. Our thirdly, worship, breaking of bread and prayer. These people were cross-centred. They broke bread in their homes in remembrance of me. That's why Jesus told us to break bread. You see, it is a reminder that God is a God of love and a God of justice. And there is tension between those two character traits of God. How are they resolved? Well, in only one place. They're resolved on the cross. God sacrifices himself to propitiate himself. Propitiation means to avert his wrath or his anger against sin. And that is the only way. It is only possible if he takes our place. You see, we can't atone for our sins, and God can't ignore them. But he can take the punishment such sin deserves, so satisfying his justice, and we can receive pardon our sins don't deserve, but which we can receive through his grace and mercy. 
You know, God will not say at the end of time when we face him after death, never mind, your sins don't matter, come on in in any case. Because those people that we have wronged would cry out for justice if he did. He means it when he says that the impenitent will face justice for their sins and eternal exclusion from his presence. You see, sin did have to be paid for or God could not forgive. Only he, though, could pay the price. Without that sacrifice, we would all be doomed. Not enough of us take him at his word. We would act differently if we did. So through the cross, we have access to God. We express that in prayer. We accompany it by singing as well. Now the fact that only God can enable us to have access to him and peace with him should keep us humble and remind us that there is no ground whatsoever for that kind of ugly self-righteousness displayed by the Pharisees. That should not be a characteristic of a Christian who knows they are only at peace with God through his grace. So prayer, so shorthand for our worship services. We try to avoid either the trad or the trendy, the boring or the bananas, the dead or the daft, because we see in the Jerusalem church a balance between formality and informality, between reverence and gladness. So, if you note, they met in the temple and in the home. One is a formal setting and one is informal. One was old, the other was new. In one they would have sang psalms, in the other they started writing new songs, of which Philippians 2, 5 to 11, Revelation 4, 11 are examples in the New Testament. There are members of our own church with songwriting gifts, others with script writing gifts, and others with creative teaching gifts with young people, whose talents, I believe, deserve wider exposure. And I wonder whether our website could be a vehicle. Their meeting in temples and in the home reminds us that they had the large gathering and the small one, the big event and the more intimate opportunity. And then in terms of emotion, we read that they experienced awe and joy or gladness. We often associate those with different uh, levels of decibels, but those emotions are evoked by the teaching and supported, no doubt, by the tune. So when we think about God as the creator or God the judge, we are moved to awe. When we think of God the redeemer, when we think of the living God, the resurrected Jesus and uh, his spirit able to be alive and well within us, we are moved to joy. You see, the word produces the vibes, if you like. True content and an apt style helps sincerity of not going through the motions. As Shakespeare said, words without thoughts never to heaven go. Or C.S. Lewis, simply to say prayers is not to pray. Otherwise, a team of properly trained parrots would serve as well as men. You see, everything so far is Christocentric. 
and shows the vital features of a living church and a living Christian. We have submission to the authority of Scripture. We are involved in fellowship. We believe in what's summarised as penal substitutionary atonement as the only way that God is able to forgive us. It alone is the centre of all the different models of the atonement. So if we feel alienated, well, God reconciles. If we feel trapped, enslaved in sin, well, God is the great liberator, the one who redeems us, buys our freedom. All these other models, they're true, but they only make sense because of what God in Christ has done right at the centre. And finally, mission. They were well thought of by their community, though through no fault of their own, that high regard wasn't to last. And we read that the Lord adds daily to their number those who are being saved. Notice it is the Lord who adds. God has revealed himself in Christ. It's been recorded. That's his living word and his written word. And um, we Christians, we are tasked with the responsibility of teaching his written word and living out the Christian life. People are able to see it and to hear it. God then, through his spirit, works on this information in their minds, convincing them that he's true and for real, convicting them of their sin, and then they cross the line to embrace the faith and are born again. So we have our role to play in teaching it and living it out, and God takes that and works it in their mind, and they move from having a vague God awareness to recognising their personal need being convinced that it's true and then through repentance and faith they cross the line and they do so to join us notice God adds to their number there's no such thing as a solitary Christian and he does it daily the first couple of sermons did produce 5,000 and 3,000 on each occasion but all the others in the Acts of the Apostles, it's three or four names which are mentioned because, of course, that's much easier to handle. And notice they are being saved. In our comfortable West, we are all far too earthbound, too centred on this life. But while it may delay having to face the question of our own mortality, it doesn't erase it. Sooner or later, suddenly or slowly, with or without warning, it's going to come to an end. And then what? Well, there is a heaven and there is a hell. There's what's true and there's what's false. There's what's right and there's what's wrong. How do we decide? Well, you've got four options. Everybody has, fundamentally, as to how you decide what is true or not. The individual decides what's right in their own eyes. I do what I want. That's the slogan of today. You hear it on the lips of so many people. I do what I want. The second option is for the majority to decide. 51% clinches it. Or you have an elite, what the Greeks called an oligarchy, the rule by the few, they decide. Or you have an outside source which determines true and false, right and wrong. For us, we recognise that God has revealed the answers to life's questions. His revelation both coheres within itself, in other words, it's not contradictory, and it corresponds to life as we experience. It has the ring of truth 
about it. Sure, we use our God-given rationality to understand it and to apply it, and we do so in consultation with others, both the living and the dead. But that's our methodology. That's our modus operandi. That is how we think. God has given us a revelation. We use our minds to understand it. We discover what it means and how we apply it by our engagement with others that we talk to or others whose books we can read. What we don't do is revise it. We don't change it. If we try to, then we distort not only the revelation, but the revealer who is behind it. The result is ultimately a different God, one of our own creation, one which is actually incredibly attractive because he is a domesticated God. He is our idol that we can manage. There is only one way to be at peace with God. It's not my way or your way, it is his way. So, four essential features of church life, both then and now, all focused on Christ. Apostolic teaching. We let the Bible fashion our thinking and direct our behaviour for the whole of our interaction with creation. Fellowship, quality relationships, real friendship for support, real partnership in ministry. Worship, the cross keeps us humble, it keeps us grateful, it gives us joy and hope as the solution, the only solution for the removal of human sin. And prayer, we are made to have a relationship with him. It's good to talk to him, and it's good to talk to him together. Admission. God is at work. He's always bringing people our way. He wants to use us to introduce people to him and then help them on the way through this life and to everlasting life. This is what we're in business for, and I invite you to engage with me in it in the year that lies before us. Amen.